At Freedom HealthWorks, we're focused on putting medical professionals back in control of their practices. Utilizing a structured, tailored approach to business, startup, and operations, it could make sense for you to work with our professional team to avoid expensive pitfalls and, more importantly, expedite your journey to success. As we all know, time is money. If you're involved in the practice of medicine and desire to practice free of headaches and constraints, reach out for a no-obligation consultative conversation. Call us today at 317-804-1203 or visit freedomhealthworks.com. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Healthcare Americana. I am your host, Christopher Habig, the CEO and co-founder of Freedom HealthWorks. This is a podcast for the 99% of people who get care in America. We talk to innovative clinicians, policymakers, patients, caregivers, executives, and advocates who are fed up with the status quo and have a desire to change it. We take you behind the scenes with people across America that are putting patients first and restoring trust in American healthcare. Here at Healthcare Americana and by extension Freedom HealthWorks, we're very big into what we call restoring the doctor-patient relationship. Now, with all things buzzwordy in healthcare, that's kind of an ambiguous definition. What does doctor-patient relationship actually mean? And in today's terms, can we actually say the word relationship in a professional setting? That's besides the point. To most people, what that means is that you have a physician that you can trust, who you can tell everything going on and trust them to do the right thing, help you out, whether it's preventive Whether it's reactive, whether it's a treatment plan, whether it's holding your hand through mental, emotional, physical illnesses, or dealing with family members, jobs, extra stresses throughout there. It is a wide, wide ranging subject. Nowadays, we talk to a ton of people who say that the doctor-patient relationship is a thing of the past. Please welcome Grady Gibbs with Evolve Medical Consulting. Grady, welcome to the show. And Right out of the bat, let's let's just decide, you know, is the doctor-patient relationship something of the past or is it still relevant today? Oh, I think it's hugely relevant. I think a lot of what's wrong with outcomes are because people don't have a good relationship, especially with a primary care doctor. And is it on the ropes? Is it damaged? Is it being uh, degraded? Absolutely. Nobody, I don't think anybody would argue that, but I don't think it's gone. And in a minute, I'll, I'll tell you why I think it's coming back. So if you talk to the average person and said, hey, you need to go see the doctor, or you need to establish care somewhere, and they say, why? Well, it's important to go see the same person because you establish a relationship. Are they going to look at you funny and saying, well, I, I, don't, I don't get it. It does not compute. Why would I need that? Yeah, I think the problem is the system has, has created the transactional mentality and I think the patient or consumer, however you view the, the other side of, that, of the table, the person sitting on the exam table, has started to view healthcare as a transactional relationship as well. And that's deadly to outcomes, of course, because you need that continuity of care. You need someone who knows your health, has seen you multiple times over time, because those things that are changing about your health that are indications of problems are not going to get picked up in a one-off transaction. So if you go see a different doctor every year for 10 years, they're not going to see that that decline or degradation in your health to recognize that you've got a problem. And by the time you get to the point where you absolutely have a problem, a lot of times that's too late. 
Now, you spent a lot of your professional career exploring the topic of improving doctor-patient relationships, helping physicians achieve, you know, we hear about the triple aim in healthcare. So give us a little bit of background of, of really who you are and the expertise that you bring to this conversation and this topic. Okay. I, I took a very circuitous route to get into healthcare, former investment banker, wound up going back to graduate school in political science, working on a, a PhD in the very statistics and game theory driven side of, of political science. Uh, wasn't government, it was it was math, okay? At the time, my, my ex-wife got laid off and I needed a job and I was still working on the dissertation when that happened. And the one thing I could leverage was my ability as a statistician to get a job. And I wound up running the telecom group for J.D. Power & Associates. And that job involved a lot of travel. I got permission from my boss to relocate back to the Dallas area where I'm from uh, because I spent all my time on the road anyway. It didn't really matter where I, where I lived or officed. And I'd no sooner settled in Dallas than I got an offer back in New York City to be a brand strategist in advertising. And the strategy side of advertising to me was the fun part of, you know, so who are we talking to? What are we trying to communicate? How are we trying to differentiate our brand and that sort of thing? And I wound up launching the direct-to-consumer campaign, and I hope none of your listeners hang up when they hear this, that, that I, I worked for the enemy at one point. But I helped launch a drug for one of the big drug companies, and we did the direct-to-consumer campaign for them. And we put 3 million people on that drug in 90 days. And this is why you see direct-to-consumer ads is that they work. They get people to go to the doctor and say, hey, what about this drug I saw on TV? Is that right for me? And at the time, again, I, I knew nothing about healthcare. I had very little. I'd done a project for another pharma company, but I really wasn't a healthcare guy. I thought that doctors got paid for the extra work that they'd have to do to put a prescription on that patient. Now, I didn't even know enough about healthcare to call it a CPT code. <laughs> and I asked these pharma guys, like, what are the doctors getting paid for spending this extra six or seven minutes? Because this is, you know, 20 plus years ago, and the docs are writing out a prescription by hand. They're having to explain to the patient how to use the drug, what things to look for, all of that. They're spending six or seven minutes times three million people. That's a lot of work, right? And these pharma guys just laughed at me that I thought the doctor should get paid for this. And they started in with this whole, you know, this is what the doctor signed up for. This is their societal obligation. This is why they're a doctor is to do this kind of work. And the idea that we pay them is ridiculous. Well, I spent a portion of my childhood on a cotton farm in West Texas. And we all have a word for what we call that if I put a gun to your head and make you pick my cotton, right? And we all know that's evil. But somehow putting a gun to your head and making you write prescriptions for my patients is not a bad thing. That's somehow the doctor's obligation to society. And I just, I was so offended by that mentality that I realized somebody needs to not be working for the device guys, not working for pharma, but working for the doctor. And I literally quit that job two weeks later. <laughs> and I've spent the last 20 years working for doctors. And it's all come from the perspective of the triple aim trying to find things that were good for the patient, good for the overall system, and good for the doctor. I think you won, uh, won some of the listeners back there that hung on to hear the happy ending to that story. But yeah, I'm, I'm kind of floored by that mentality because you hear that a lot for physicians like, well, you know, I have to do on call and interrupt my weekends. And 
I'm not compensated for it. And then there's this other shift in mentality that it's like, well, I'm a physician. I'm here to take other people. Profit's a bad thing. Why would I want to make a profit? That's that's not what my obligation right. to my patients is. And so, you know, with that, I want to toe into really how physicians get in that mindset. And it, and it sounds like it, they're getting hit from a bunch of different ways. You know, pharmaceutical companies, which advertising direct to consumers is one of those things that just baffles me. And, and I'm like, well, that's a very expensive TV time slot. I wonder how much money you could have saved on drug prices if you didn't have to do that and go that route with it. But, right. you know, not to go down a complete rabbit hole there. But Focusing on that pervasive mentality that a physician is here just to serve at our whim, our beck and call, is very toxic to that profession and those people that are practicing that profession. That's right. I mean, you don't want doctors to be completely mercenary, all about the bottom line and making a buck necessarily, but the idea that a physician is not entitled to be treated with respect, to be paid fairly for their work... They're not being paid for their time. They're being paid for what they know, and that needs to be compensated. And I see the system structured today is to treat doctors like well-paid auto mechanics. You know, shut up and get in the back and crank wrenches. You know, fix the cars. That's what we're paying you to do. Uh, We're not paying you to have opinions or, or perspective. Just deal with it. And that, I think, has led to this sense of moral injury for doctors that, you know, just to give an example, um, we have a client who was a primary care physician employed by a hospital system, had a patient who had migraine problems. There was a neurologist employed by the same system who's, you know, obviously all neurologists know all of neurology, but they all, they all have kind of their thing, right? And some neurologists just love migraine. That's their specialty. They've really taken taken it to the next level in terms of how to treat migraines. And this neurologist that she wanted to refer to was an older guy who'd been around forever and knew migraine inside and out. Well, they had recently hired a new neurologist who had a very light schedule. He wasn't busy. Now, his emphasis, his specialty, what he wanted to do was TBI, right? Traumatic brain injury. And again, he could treat a migraine, but that wasn't his thing. And she tried to refer the patient to the older neurologist who was a a migraine guy and was told, sorry, this new guy has a light schedule. We need to fill it up. You have to send the patient to that guy. And it was just, you know, what am I doing here? Why am I employed in a system that forces me to make this kind of decision on behalf of my patient? So it's not just about the money. To me, it's about the autonomy the ability to, to exercise the, the good judgment that you've developed over all these years of training to become a physician, and then all the experience you've gained as a physician, to negate all of that because we want you to just be a cog in the wheel kind of approach. And again, for me, it's that concept of like treating them like auto mechanics really fits because we don't pay you to have opinions. We don't pay you to give feedback. Just get back there and crank the wrenches. Go fix the cars so we can we can hit our monthly numbers so I can get my bonus. You know, that mentality. And I think that's very damaging to doctors. And you're right. Doctors do sometimes feed into that by viewing themselves as these self-sacrificing, I have to suffer, you know, there's this nobility in not making a living <laughs> kind of approach that, that really, it, it harms them and it harms their patients ultimately. 
Absolutely. I love the analogy of, hey, a, a very well-paid mechanic, get in the back there, fix everything. Don't talk to the customer. Don't tell the customer just little tips and tricks on how to keep the car from coming back. That's right. Because that's where the lifeblood is, right? We're talking with Grady Gibbs of Evolve Medical Consulting. Grady, we started the show out by talking about you know how the doctor-patient relationship has evolved and you know spend a little bit of time talking about how physicians have kind of been pushed in the background there. Want to spend some time talking about kind of your bread and butter is on the branding and marketing side of things. I'm curious because this is always an interesting conversation when we say the M word, marketing. You know, there's a lot of kind of misconceptions about that. It's a very, again, ambiguous term right. out there. But to combat exactly what we just talked about, to combat this oh, I would say commoditization of physicians that anybody with a stethoscope and a white lab coat, they're all the same, so I can go see anybody and everybody. Marketing a brand is going to be very, very important, especially as physicians start to wake up and say, you know what, I don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to go be working for this nameless organization. I want to strike out, be independent, take care of people the way that I want to take care of them, the way I was trained, the way I've experienced it, like you said. So give us a quick overview of, in your world, what branding and marketing means and what that can do for a physician. You know, again, when I was in the advertising world, I was not the creative guy, right? I'm not the guy that actually, you know, shoots the ad or writes the copy. I was the strategist. And you can imagine with, a, with an investment banking background, finance kind of guy, a lot of how I think about things gets back to the financing of it, the, the, the financial impact of it. And so one of the major insights that we share with clients is that, uh, and you have, to, you have to separate doctors. Like you said, they're not all the same. The white lab coats all look alike, but that doesn't mean the people wearing them are all the same. If you're an orthopedic surgeon and you are doing a knee replacement, if you're doing that knee replacement for a patient insured by Cigna or Aetna, you're going to get a lot more pay for the exact same work than you will if you're being reimbursed by Medicare, right? So I'm not going to ever argue with an orthopedic surgeon that Medicare is not a great payer relative to the commercial plans. But when you start talking about primary care, and this is this is where it gets complicated, doctors they hear their colleagues in other specialties saying Medicare is a horrible payer. And then they look at, I get $125 for a 99213 from Cigna. I get $89 for that same 99213 from Medicare. Therefore, Medicare is a horrible payer for me as well, right? And this is a natural conclusion that doctors draw. The reality is Medicare is the best payer for a primary care physician. Other than a direct contract type of subscription model, which is obviously that's, that's like the best that you can get. That's the top of the pyramid. But the very next best model from a financial standpoint is Medicare. And you get a lot of weird looks when you tell doctors that. But that's become our position is if you do Medicare right. In other words, we're not talking about anything that's abusive of the system because remember the second of our three aims is to be good for the system. In other words, we're looking for things that, that save Medicare money. If you look at the Medicare guidelines, and Medicare is not as subtle as you might think they are, they're telling you what they want you to do. And there are preventative treatments like 
chronic care management, the annual wellness visit, remote patient monitoring, remote therapeutic monitoring, and so forth, that all compensate a PCP way beyond anything they can make from a commercial payer. So the reality is that marketing a PCP practice is the easiest thing in the planet. And if I had my druthers, all PCPs would take Medicare and do Medicare right and then have a subscription-based model, a direct payment model, either from the consumer or the employer, that's like a capitation model. And that, that model works for everyone. So when it comes down to marketing and trying to grow the panel of Medicare patients, which are the best paying patients in the primary care world, that's an easy conversation because all you have to do is do what the other doctors don't do, which is welcome new Medicare patients. <laughs> I mean, it's not difficult. Well, I think that's where you get a bunch of pitchforks coming at you, coming on uh, to this show and saying, hey, everybody needs to be going to, to work with Medicare on here. Um, you know, you're still working in a quantity-based practice, though, so I am going to push back, and, 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 and Medicare doesn't make it easy to take a subscription payment as well as see Medicare patients. There's all kinds of hoops to jump through. And you don't want to defraud the federal government by charging less because, frankly, I agree with you that Medicare is overpaying, but it has to because there's all this other BS involved in filing these claims and all the red tape and bureaucracy and hoops to jump through. So, you know, that's my rebuttal to that. And, and again, you know, I'll say, hey, listeners, just, let's just, you know, have, give, give us a second to get through this conversation. So going back to the branding marketing aspect of it, are you saying, hey, a practice should go out here and say, I'm going to market directly to Medicare recipients and that's it? I mean, what, what is your message to practices specifically? Before I dive into this, I do need to say I look horrible in orange, okay? <laughs> so I, I would never recommend anything that a physician do run any risk of meeting anybody from the OIG, right? The, the Office of Inspector General who enforces the Medicare rules I personally have never met anybody from the OIG, and I plan to keep it that way. I think we all do, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I just I don't want to go there. Well, my point is they don't they don't make it easy to work with them. Is is my point there? And there's all kinds of gray area, and you can't get a solid effort or solid answer back from anybody at CMS of ordering, referring, or completely opting out. Or what if I want to provide pro bono, or I want to provide care, and somebody gives me a dozen chickens once a week? Technically, that's illegal to do for a Medicare recipient. Right. You either accept the assignment or you don't. My position, and again, you know, bring the pitchforks. It's okay. I'm, I'm, I've been stabbed a few times before. My position would be with Medicare patients, don't worry about a subscription model. Don't even talk to them about a subscription model. Simply accept Medicare assignment, but do the Medicare guidelines the way Medicare asks you to do them. Yes, there's a cost to billing and collecting, but... The profit per patient, the margin per patient is so much higher than the traditional fee-for-service model applied to commercial plans that it's worth doing. On the commercial side, I would reject all commercial plans and only take subscription model patients. And that way I would have essentially two separate panels in the practice, which is not that complicated to do. My subscription panel that pays their monthly fee for sort of unlimited primary care, direct access to the doctor, and so forth. That's what healthcare should look like when you're under 65. Over 65, the way I say this, because I'm from Texas and I, I kind of speak bluntly sometimes, I tell doctors, avoid being cute. If you've got to get a legal letter and 
an opinion from an attorney and you've got to jump through a bunch of shenanigans in order to do something, just don't do it. Just play it straight down the middle on your Medicare patients, accept Medicare assignment, but do all of the things that Medicare wants you to do and you'll make plenty of money on your Medicare panel. You can have a couple of hundred Medicare patients and have a really successful little practice and then you have your 300, 400 patients on a subscription model where you're charging, you know, the monthly fee and give them the kind of care that is completely irrelevant what payers involved or or whether they even have insurance, take care of those patients that way. And you've actually got, I think, the best of both worlds. So how does that help a doctor practice medicine the way they want to and experience when you just said, do everything Medicare wants you to do? That's putting a third party right back in the middle of it. But Medicare has very little in the way of prior authorization rationing. They pay within a couple of weeks. It's not as difficult to deal with Medicare as it is a regular commercial payer. And they are happy to compensate you for things like chronic care management. You can have that done for you where someone is tracking that patient coordinating referrals to other physicians, making sure that the classic example I've seen, a doctor will have a patient on something that is, uh, uh, the the liver is a no-go zone on that patient because what the, the drugs they've got the patient on, they don't want anything damaging the liver. The patient will go to a podiatrist who doesn't know what other drugs that patient is on and they'll prescribe Lamisil for toenail fungus, okay, and that has a liver warning on it. You shouldn't be taking Lamisil if you've got things going on with the liver. Well, most doctors are not going to know everything going on in that patient's life if they're practicing medicine and taking care of the patients who are in front of them. Have a care coordinator who tracks that patient and finds that out for you, and you can, you can 86 that prescription because that's going to affect the liver in a way that I don't want you doing. So to me, it's a little bit of a balancing act. And again, go back to what I said ideal world, everybody pays a monthly subscription. They get unlimited primary care. That to me is the model that we all ought to be pursuing. But for me, transitioning to that model is really easy to do if you're willing to take Medicare. You can generate in a typical fee-for-service practice, take total patients in the panel, divide into total collected revenue, ask a doctor to actually run that number because none of them know this number. (laughs) None of them know this number. If you take your total collected revenue from a fee-for-service practice and divide by the total active patients, you will see average revenue per patient in the $300 range. That seems low. If you're on a subscription model, your average revenue is more like $700 or $800 a year per patient, and that's why the, the subscription model is so much better for PCP. But if you do what Medicare is asking you to do in terms of preventative care, that margin per patient, not gross revenue, but actual margin per patient can easily surpass twelve to $1,500 per patient per year. For me, it comes back to, you know, Medicare is, in my mind, a government minimum recommendation. You talk to a lot of physicians, they're like, well, actually, I want to provide, I want to see my patient more. I want to do more than this, more than this. But Medicare actually represents a barrier to good patient care to that doctor-patient relationship, unfortunately. I do think that there can be a way to single thread it, but the government's got to get out of the way. You can't have somebody just staunchly in the middle of that saying, thou shall do this, shall shall not do that. If we're talking about things like, you know, private health accounts where Medicare is able to fund accounts so that somebody's free to go seek the care that they actually need and not 
some pencil pusher bureaucrat in Washington saying, oh, hey, uh, Grady out in Texas, uh, yeah, he needs this stuff. Uh, yeah, that's going to be good for him and everybody else his age in, in, in the United States. That's where you have a major disconnect because healthcare is so localized. So, you know, I, I do agree that there are areas where programs can fit into this kind of modern movement of, you know, we see across industries that people want answers. They want answers now. They have, you know, this is the information age beyond it. It's kind of generation now. I don't want to go to Google and look up medical conditions. And, you know, if you're 65 and older, you're still a very tech savvy. You know, you're using Facebook like crazy and YouTube. And you need a physician there guiding you along the way. So, you know, that's where I'm curious in our standpoint is how do we break down those barriers? And, you know, to your point, you just said, you know, this can be part of a transition into that. And it's a learning curve. My goodness. Um, you see it, you know, you're, you're, you're on the branding side of it. And I'm sure that you work with practices who say, how do I answer the question of why should I pay this extra charge when I'm already paying for insurance or the Medicare program or whatever this is. And the practices have to dance around that. So there's a wholesale flip, I guess, some psychological light switch uh, in our head that we got to, just get over as a society and, and, and as a, as a patient base here. So Grady, as we, as we wind down here, our time, I want to, want to get your, your crystal ball outlook here. So, you know, we spent a lot of time talking about transition practices and, and, and kind of a hybrid mentality. I want you to expand it. You know, we spend a lot of time talking about primary care too. talk about soup to nuts, every single physician out there, all the medical practitioners, providers, you name it, working together to create a healthier society what does the perfect healthcare system look like to you? Well, this is going to be perhaps less controversial than, than our previous topic. Okay. If you look at the math as a CFO of a hospital, you are losing money by employing surgeons. No CFO who's worth the salt, has a TI calculator, can ever argue that point. Every single hospital will admit they are subsidizing the cost of the surgeon because what they think they're getting is locking in the facility fee. And that's why hospitals employ surgeons, right? Is we lose money providing the staff and the insurance and the payroll and all of the overhead that we have to, to provide an orthopedic surgeon to our community, but we make it up on the facility fees because we capture everything that surgeon does. He brings all of his knee replacements to ROR and we capture the facility fees. And then the, the next phase in that was, what if we just went out and employed all of the PCPs who refer to our orthopedic surgeon, and now we've captured an entire, we've got like vertical integration, as an economist would call it, because we have the hospital get the facility fee, we have the surgeon who takes the facility fee to our hospital, and we've got the PCP who sees the patient and refers it to the surgeon. The problem is that it's a loss leader strategy. They're losing money on the surgeon and they're losing money on the PCP. You know, in this country, it's against the law for a grocery store to sell milk below cost. Grocery stores used to do that. They would sell their milk below actual cost because the people who buy milk have children and therefore buy a lot of groceries. And that was their way of capturing that market. Hospitals are doing a variation of that with price transparency that's coming and I think the regulatory environment, they are going to be looking at ways to shed those money-losing operations, meaning I think we're going to see massive layoffs 
from the hospital systems. They're going to spin off those primary care doctors and those surgeons and go back to competing for the facility fee on convenience, the quality of the scrub techs and the nurses in the OR and the support, how easy it is to schedule a case, all the supply chain issues of how we get product to the OR so you can actually do an implant or a surgery. All of those things are going to to happen. And the issue is you're going to have, I think, hundreds of thousands of PCPs getting laid off from the hospital systems over the next few years. So our argument to those guys is you need to be out in front of that, that trend. You need to be looking at going independent in a, again, our preference is as everyone does a direct primary care model for the PCP. But for me, using Medicare as a transition is an easy step. You can immediately get, and I, I give this for free. I'll tell any doctor that wants to talk about it, I'll tell them exactly how to go get a panel of two to 300 Medicare patients tomorrow. Open up your practice. You're, you're profitable, not wildly so, but you're, you're a profitable business. You're making a living from day one. Then you build your, your DPC panel, your subscription panel of people that you're practicing medicine the way you want to. And then I think the model becomes the PCP has the personal relationship with the patient. The PCP also has a personal relationship with the various specialists and surgeons and can refer properly to the right physician or surgeon to serve that patient. And then the hospitals can go back to competing on who's doing the best job for the surgeon and get the facility fees accordingly. And I think that's where we're headed. Grady Gibbs, Evolve Medical Consulting. Grady, appreciate you coming on here. There's a million of different ways to attack the same, I guess, boogeyman, monster, whatever you want to call it. And, and we are all going in the, in, the, in the same direction, and that's going to be the important thing here as everybody experiments with a bunch of different models. And that's, that's the fun thing about it and what we're doing right now. So Grady Gibbs, Evolve Medical Consulting. Thanks a lot for joining us here on Healthcare Americana. Thank you, sir. That's going to do it for this episode of Healthcare Americana. If you haven't yet, be sure to subscribe to this show on your favorite podcast platform. Check us out online at healthcareamericana.com to catch previous episodes, subscribe to our mailing list, and visit our online store. Once again, I am your host, Christopher Habig. Thanks for listening. Check out healthcareamericana.com to hear all our episodes, visit the shop, and learn more about the podcast. Healthcare Americana is produced by Taylor Scott and iPodcast Pro and managed by Melissa Turpin. Healthcare Americana is brought to you by Freedom HealthWorks and Freedom Doc. If you've been struggling to get the care you need and the access you want, it's time to join your local Freedom Doc. Visit freedomdoc.care to find the practice location nearest you. Whether you're a patient, employer, or physician, the Free Market Medical Association can facilitate and assist you in your free market healthcare journey. The foundation of our association is built upon three pillars, price, value, and equality, with complete transparency in everything we do. Our goal is simple, match willing buyers with willing sellers of valuable healthcare services. Join us and help accelerate the growth of the free market healthcare revolution. For more information on the Free Market Medical Association, visit fmma.org. Hi again, everyone. This is Chris. At Healthcare Americana, we're always on the lookout for great stories to tell in the healthcare industry. And we'd like to hear yours. Check out healthcareamericana.com and send us your ideas for episodes or if you'd like to be a guest. Thanks again for listening. 
Hope you enjoy it.